people have some very in-depth questions about the creation of these books and your place in the history of the Berenstains. So, uh, you know, well, I'll do my best. I don't know. <laughs> it, I find that when people ask me questions about things like that, I tend to wander off into obscure sidebars sometimes. So if I'm doing that, just steer me back onto the main course. Well, I don't think it would be stretching it too far for me to say that this show thrives on obscure sidebars. Welcome back to Deep in Bear Country, a Berenstain Bearcast. I'm your host, Phil Gonzalez, and we are at 50 episodes. Now, this is something I am very proud of. I haven't done 50 of much of anything in my life. We have been on the air for almost a year now, slowly accruing new listeners, slowly spreading word of the Berenstain Bears, and I am just happy to be here. I'm happy to have the listeners I have. I'm happy to have the support I've been receiving, and I'm happy to have made the new friends I have made. And so, to celebrate 50 episodes on the air, I have brought in a very special guest. Mike Berenstain, the current author and illustrator of the Berenstain Bear books, the son of Stan and Jan Berenstain. Having him on the show is a blessing and a dream. So, Without further ado, my interview with Mike Berenstain. So I guess to start off with, I would love to know, just going back. So in the first episode of the show, we covered the history of your parents uh, growing up and developing this world that they created. But what I would like to know is growing up in the Berenstain household, did you know that you were growing up in a world that was atypical, that was a little different than other kids, or was it just a normal life for you? Both. I, I knew it was not what other people were doing. That I knew it wasn't like how other families worked and what people did, because I lived in the where my parents started off when I was a kid was just a very typical suburban neighborhood. You know, like something I looked like out of Leave It to Beaver. It was a very small houses and small plots in a suburban neighborhood in, in the Philadelphia suburbs. So everybody else, they were doing normal. They weren't doing a lot. There were, there were other artists in the neighborhood, creative people, but most people were doing regular kind of, you know, go to an office job. So I knew it was different for your parents to have a studio at home and be artists and do cartoons. But at the same time, it felt totally normal to me. I didn't think of it as being weird or bizarre. It just seemed that that's, that's what my life was. So it was maybe both, oddly enough. Because kids, kids tend to really, I think, uh, accept whatever their life is. And they don't, you know, and when you're a little kid, you don't cogitate about things like that and try to analyze it. That's just the way it is. And how much of your home life was taken up by, by the, your parents' creations? Like, how visible was it in your house? Oh, everywhere. Both, I mean, their, their studio was a part of the house. And they spent, you know, most of their time in the studio when they weren't doing stuff with me and my brother. Uh, they, you know, my parents, they grew up in the Depression. They were very, from very poor families, um, self-made people, self-invented people. And they just worked all the time. They, they, that's what they like to do is work. And to call, them, to call them workaholics would be kind of offensive to workaholics. They were more like uh, workaphiliacs. They were just, they were completely obsessed. <laughs> uh, and that's what they did. 
but uh, in terms of the the environment, they had uh, their paint. They, they did a lot of painting, both in art school and then subsequently oil paintings and watercolors and drawings of all kinds. So they were all over, hanging all over the house. Um, and also they had framed, you know, pieces of their cartoon artwork that were up everywhere. And of course the studio was just covered with everything. everything. And, and my brother and I hung out in the studio a lot. I remember uh, just like as a kid lying on the floor of the studio, sitting on the floor drawing, we would go into the studio. We, well, we use their materials, use their equipment, use their typewriters, use their light boxes just hang out. So it was very much part of my childhood. Was there ever a possibility that you weren't going to grow up to become uh, an illustrator, an artist? Oh, yeah. No, I had no, that really didn't develop until, I didn't even start to think in those directions until I was in high school, I'd say. Uh, although I always liked to draw and would do a lot of artwork, and that seemed to be a natural thing for me. I wanted to be a scientist. I was I was a, a nature kid, like the bug collector and, you know, having spiders and jars and snakes and things like that. Uh, I was obsessed with animals and wanted to be, I wanted to be an entomologist. But and it wasn't until high school that I got, you know, got to the, in the science club in first year of high school and we'd go on field trips to labs and things that I began to realize just how boring being a scientist might be. <laughs> so I, I kind of, at the same time, fortunately, I also was getting very interested in art just because I was got interested in the history of art, you know, courses in school and looking at paintings. And, and my dad and mom, of course, were very interested and helped me with that and talked to me about that. And so that's how I made the transition. I just, it was a kind of a natural, it wasn't that I lost interest in science. I still like science, but uh, I got interested in art and began to think of it as an exciting thing to do maybe for as a career. Well, and early on in your career, you were still sort of marrying the natural sciences with art. I did, a, I did all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the, some of the first work I did was uh, animal illustration. But then I did a lot of uh, books that were more of a fantasy type of books about right. subjects like trolls, sorcerers, wizards, things like that. And then I tried all kinds of things. I was like a utility infielder of, of children's books for a while. And what was your first major published work? Actually, I don't remember the sequence. Now. I think the first major thing I did, I couldn't get any jobs. I, I, I had, uh, you know, come out of art school and uh, my parents got me a job as a kind of a assistant to the assistant uh, designer at, in Random House in the children's department so to learn the ropes of publishing. And I was okay at that, but I realized I really wanted to be an illustrator. So I, I, I went home. I had no money. I had no place to live. And I just worked on illustration. In art school, I mainly been doing painting, so I didn't have an illustration portfolio. So I, if I was going to be a professional illustrator, I had to put together a portfolio to take around. And I did. I did that for about six months, just doing samples, sitting in my parents' studio. And uh, then I started to just you know, go around to publishers. There were a lot of small publishers in New York in those days, so you could just sort of wander in and say, here, look at my portfolio. Not like now. You can't do that anymore. They won't look at anything, I don't think. Uh, unless they, I, don't, I don't do that anymore, but at that time, it was rather easy to break in. But I still couldn't get any work. People would look at my work and they'd say, oh, this is nice. And we'll call you if, you know, if you have anything with anybody. So finally, my, my dad knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. <laughs> and there was a small religious publishing house in Philadelphia, the Jewish Publication Society. Uh, it's a scholarly house. Publishes like, you know, the, uh, the translations of the Torah and things. It goes back on like, 200 years. And they happened to be doing a few children's books on Jewish religious subjects. 
and they need an illustrator for one of them. It was like a little kid's book about a little kind of Tom Thumb character. Mm-hmm. And I got the job, and so I. It was a very, very beautifully produced book. I think that it was. It was not really a commercial book. It was really mainly for like they'd sell to libraries and things. So I think they only published about you know five hundred, six hundred copies of it, and I made like a hundred dollars or something. But it was a nice book, and I did all the illustrations, and that was I guess my first. I guess it was around nineteen seventy. Five or six. That's probably got to be quite a collector's piece at this point. I don't know if anybody collects that stuff. <laughs> you know, somebody out there probably collects okay. that stuff. <laughs> it's, not, it's not theirs. It's, it's 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 not. It's just little. It's a little tiny person, but it has it has animals in it. It's, it's about this character. Is you know he's a Tom Thumb kind of character. So he's interacting with uh, like rabbits and turtles and making friends with them. It's a cute book. Yeah. Uh, speaking of of that, what is your um. What is your religious background? Well, that's a good question. Uh, my my dad was from a Jewish family, but totally secular. They were not religious. They were very, very poor, rather uneducated people, frankly. My great-grandfather was a blacksmith, my dad's side. They, they didn't have a lot of sophistication. They were not religious. Uh, but they were ethnically and culturally very Jewish in Philadelphia. My mother's side of the family, uh, she was raised Episcopalian. And she always used to say her biggest problem was being able to say it as a kid, uh, mispronouncing it. So she had a conventional Christian upbringing. But by the time they met in art school, they really dropped it. They, they were not, they just, it wasn't that they were hostile to religious background. They just weren't interested anymore. So neither of them as adults were conventionally religious. So my brother and I were not raised in any particular religion. Uh, my, my parents, oddly enough, they, they believed that everybody should know about the Bible because of its importance in Western culture. It's the you know, cornerstone of, of civilization. So they actually gave us Bible lessons every Sunday in our home, read Bible readings and we learn Bible stories. But that was it for religious upbringing. I didn't become religious in my, you know, have on my own sense of spirituality until I was an adult. Right. Because, uh, because I mean, obviously later on the, uh, the books themselves you took into a, uh, a new direction. Yeah. As an adult, I became involved with religious communities first through my kids. I live in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was founded by Quakers. Mm-hmm. People, people get them confused with the Amish. They both live in Pennsylvania, but they're different. The Quakers were the founders of Pennsylvania and they're, they have lots of schools in Pennsylvania that if you're from Pennsylvania, very often that's what you do. You send your kids to a Quaker school because it's just, they're there. And so my kids went to Quaker schools and a lot of people I know that's, that's their background too. And so I became very involved with the Quaker community that way and actually joined the Quaker meeting, but then realized that my own spirituality was really more overtly traditionally Christian. So I joined a Presbyterian church. So I've gone to Presbyterian churches, Episcopal churches. That's, that's what I do. Getting back to uh to your early career, uh, what kind of weight did the name Berenstain carry with it? If it carried any kind of weight at all? Oh, it had it, it had an impact. It got me in to see people. Mm-hmm. People say, "Oh, you're Stan Jan's son. Uh, here, we'll look at your portfolio." So they certainly it was you know professional courtesy to people who knew them or knew of them. But it really didn't get me any jobs. Unfortunately, as I described. Finally, I, I broke in by getting this very obscure work for this small publisher. But then once I had this book published, then I could take that around in addition right. to samples. And people said, oh, you've published a book. And then they took me more seriously. And then I got other actual book publication work after that. 
And what were your other uh, family members? What were other family members' roles uh, in this development? My brother, older brother Leo, has never did any illustration. He's he's a very good writer, and he he did a lot of writing on when we were doing the chapter books because he had uh, done some. Uh, he has uh, you know literary skills. He had. I'll tell you about my brother. He's not. He's, uh, Leo uh, was uh, in, very involved in sciences. His his education was all in science. He. Uh, was actually at the point of working on his doctoral dissertation on primate ecology. Uh, and that he eventually actually went, spent two years in the jungles of Borneo studying in Indonesia, studying monkeys. But then when he came back, he was at UC Davis worked doing his, and he came back to California to develop his, write his thesis. He really decided he didn't like monkeys. <laughs> he didn't want to do that anymore. He wanted to be a writer. So he wrote a book of short stories about his experiences in Indonesia, which got published and got very respectful reviews. And then he started working on a novel about Indonesia fiction. And he wrote it and wrote it and wrote it and never finished it. So he started working on Bernstein Bear chapter books in like the 90s. And he was very good at that. So he worked on them with my dad. They co-wrote them. Uh, but then after that, he really lost interest in it and he's my and I, that sounds bad i'm sorry sorry Leo. <laughs> but it's true though he lost he, he sort of he wandered away from the path of writing mm-hmm. and um he uh works uh with me uh as in our, our the business side of things primarily on the financial side he's very smart so he can deal with bookkeeping and working with lawyers and accountants and so he, he does he does that which is a very useful thing to do now you didn't start out as a uh, as a writer, but now you're very much a writer. Well, I started writing uh, really early on because, again, trying to get a job. I, when when I go into publishers in the late seventies, when I was doing starting out, and uh, I'd say, "Here, you know, here's my illustration portfolio. I'm looking for jobs as an illustrator." They would say things like, "Well, what we really need is somebody to write and illustrate books. Mm. We don't have a lot of just manuscripts." We need the whole the whole package. Can do you have any ideas for books you'd like to write and illustrate? So I'd say I just sure I'll make something up on the spot, and they'd say yeah, try that. So I I tried that, and that's how the first books that I wrote and illustrated got published, which also also in the late seventies. Right, right. How how about as far as the uh, well, I guess one of the questions that people have for you is when did you really get involved in the Bear family? Well, that have been it started in the in the Late 80s. Well, actually, it started a little earlier uh, at the time when uh, the CBS Saturday Morning series came out. Then, as I think you've been talking about, then you had a big explosion of the, the, the Bernstein Bears as a brand. Mm-hmm. It began to be used, and people wanted it for various commercial purposes, products, theme parks, things like that. And my parents were doing everything themselves at that point. It's just Stan Jan. And uh, they were working through various agencies who would do, you know, do, get books published or, or you know, make deals for uh, licensing uh, products, things like that. But they really were overwhelmed, starting to be overwhelmed, even though they were workaholics. They still couldn't do everything. And so they asked me and my brother to get involved in talking to people, kind of being a go-between on the business side of this expanded activity. So I, that was my first, I'd say, 1986, 87, I was doing, starting to get involved with that side of things to help them out with their business. 
But then they also began not to really have time to complete all the books they were doing. And of course, I was by that time a very experienced illustrator. Technically, I could do all kinds of, you know, watercolor and pen work. So they would ask me to uh, help them out with like finishing a book. Here, can you do the color in this book? So I would do a few things like that. They also still were publishing cartoons with Good Housekeeping at that time. But they didn't have time to do that anymore. Their, their series, It's All in the Family, which had been started with McCall's and then Good Housekeeping. In the mid-80s, they were still doing that. And it was a perfectly, you know, good job. They, they liked, they, and they liked doing it. It was their original career. Uh, but it really wasn't as important professionally as doing all the Bernstein Bear work, which was this really their main work at that point. So they asked me if I would be interested in getting involved in working with them on the cartoons, uh, the, the magazine cartoons. So I did a lot of work with them on that to help, again, help them out and relieve the pressure on them. But then by around 
And at one point she said, you know, these are fine, but there's just one problem. The ears on the bears are all too low. You've made them too low on their heads. And I said, oh, okay, mom, well, I'll fix that. She, she knows, she knows the bears. So I got them back in my studio and I was looking at them and looking and going to correct them. And I realized they didn't look too low. They just were, they always were in all the books. And I even actually got out a whole bunch of contemporary books that they had just done. And I got out a ruler and, you know, it's, it's tracing paper. And I was measuring where the ears are and, and overlaying it, comparing it to my ears. And they looked exactly the same to me. So I thought, I'm crazy. But, you know, she knows. So I called her up and I said, Mom, I'm happy to make the ears higher. But I'm just confused because where I'm putting them, it looks to me like they're just, she said, yeah, you're right. They've always been too low. Your father makes them too low. <laughs> we're going to have them higher from, it's, she says, it's always bugged me that he draws them too low. So from now on, we're going to make them higher. And we've always had them. And it, she explained that the problem was that the Berenstain bears are this, they're anthropomorphic bears. They look like people, but they don't look just like people. Their proportions are different. They have long torsos and short legs. And, and she said the, the, having the ears perfectly level with the eyes, that's exactly like a human being's head. So she wanted to make them a little less humanoid mm. by moving the ears up a little bit so they'd be a little more bearish and distinctive. So that's the way I've done it ever since. Well, speaking of that, uh, how free do you feel now? You've inherited quite a legacy. Uh, the Berenstain Bears is quite a legacy. How much, how beholden do you feel to that legacy and how free do you feel to take it now in your own artistic direction? Well, I don't really feel free to take it in a really distinctive artistic direction. I try to keep it as close to the style that had evolved by say 2000 when we were, when the, all three of us were working on them together. And I try to keep it looking like that. Now, I can't do the artwork exactly the way my parents did. We all had slightly distinctive styles. And they were, uh, they were very, very uh, great cartoonists, whereas that was their natural uh, uh, style, cartooning. But they also had great realistic art skills, and they were able to merge the two into this kind of naturalistic cartoon world that they created. And for me, the cartoon aspect of it is a little more forced. Uh, so I can't do the, I don't think that my cartooning style with the characters is quite as effective as theirs. So I try to make up for it by having great attention to detail mm. and being very careful and putting in little cute details and things like that. So I, I try to keep the artistic, the purely stylistic legacy. But in terms of subject matter and what the content of the books, obviously I've taken things in different direction. Uh, you know, we, we have both books that are very much in the tradition of the original books that we published with HarperCollins. But then, of course, I've done the Living Lights lines with, with, with HarperCollins' Zondervan division, which deal with spiritual issues. And although that's something my parents approved of, and they wanted to do that, they, they liked that idea of doing that, that was my idea that they signed on for and encouraged. So that's taking it in a different direction. But I tried to keep even that, um, the, the, you know, the kind of internal logic of the characters and their world, I try to keep that consistent within both lines of books. What is the uh, what is the goal of the Zondervan series? Well, the original goal was, and you know, people I think read too much into my my motivations in doing something like that. What happened was that, as you probably know, but may not, a lot of people may not know, is that we shifted from Random House to HarperCollins, and in, in, uh, I think the first books published with. HarperCollins were around 2004. 
And that had to do with uh, basically professional issues dealing with the PBS show, which came on at that time. Uh, my parents, and I too, but my dad particularly, he wanted to uh, expand and, and improve the Bernstein Bear publishing line with Random House. Uh, they were kind of getting them, they felt they were being boxed into doing just certain kinds of books in a very limited way in that period. And the PBS show, my dad felt, was an opportunity to do more kinds of books with Random House. But they didn't go for it. They said, no, then we won't do that. And my dad really was angry about that and felt that was a very bad move on their part. So he made contact with HarperCollins and asked them, would they like to take over the line of books and expand our publishing program and do different kinds of formats, different kinds of books? And they said, yeah. And so that we did that. And it was very successful. It, it, it's been a huge improvement in the whole publishing program that we've been doing since then. And it happens that HarperCollins, uh, they had this divisions on it, which was a big uh, Christian publishing division. I don't think they'd owned it for that long, but it was very successful. And I personally was had religious ideas at that time and religious experience. So I said to my parents, I said, hey, look at this. There's this division Zondervan that HarperCollins has that is very successful publishing into the Christian market. They have a children's division called Zonder Kids. I said, hey, would, we consider, would it make sense to try to do a line of books for that marketplace? So I liked the idea because it was a subject matter I was interested in personally. It fit in with my own personal spiritual experience. But the idea of it was simply that it was going to be some books, a few books for the Christian marketplace, that Christian families would appreciate these books, helping their raising their kids, dealing with issues like you know, going to Sunday school or the golden rule or, you know, God's love. Just basic kind of Sunday school one-on-one subjects for Christian families. Uh, I didn't visualize them as being anything except a, a sort of a, a sideline that would go into Christian bookstores. That's how I, because that was, this is a long time ago. This was over 10 years ago that we were mm-hmm. thinking, first thing about that. And that's sort of the way the business worked at that time. But what happened is once they got published in 2008, the first four came out, they exploded in the marketplace. They just were distributed everywhere. And so they got kind of intermingled with all the other books in a way that I didn't anticipate. Mm. I thought it would be self-evident to everybody that these books, they would be in Christian bookstores and people looking for that kind of book would be the only people seeking them. I didn't think of it as something that, so people think that I had some kind of, you know, proselytizing impulse, which that wasn't what I was thinking at all. Although I guess they just have to, you have to live with however things turn out. Right. <laughs> the books have been, the books have been, were, were, have been startlingly successful, much more so. I thought, I, as I say, I thought it would be sort of, you know, a nice little sideline that would do, but it didn't turn out that way. Well, I was working at a, uh, at a uh, bookstore in the early 2000s. And that was around the time that Christian publishing suddenly really started hitting the mainstream. So yeah, uh, that was it was very different. It's not that's not what I and of course publishing and has changed so much so mm-hmm. drastically so quickly uh, in the past twenty and certainly ten years that it has been very difficult for me having grown up with very traditional publishing which didn't change that much. You know things were very predictable in children's publishing for decades, and so the, the wild gyrations that have happened with e-publishing and e-retailing and changes in you know, the closing of bookstores and it's just been very difficult for me to adapt but i try well i have a few surprising things happen well i have a few questions here from friends and listeners who uh 
had a few things they wanted to ask you. Um, One of them is, what has been the impact of digital publishing, Uh, not only on the way the books are released, but on the way the books are created? Well, it's had no impact on the way they're created. Uh, The only digital element is once the artwork is done and goes to the publisher, they, of course, scan it and digitize it and they process all their their, their designing and, you know, uh, all the work they do in-house is digital. But I don't do anything digital. Um, it's all just done watercolor on illustration board. Um, so it has no effect on the creation of it. Once they're published, of course, they're released as eBooks, mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, with tablet format for you know, Kindle and Nook. They're, those are very bad formats for picture books. Uh, that, but that's, that's what's available. People who want uh, children's picture books on tablets that's they're kind of stuck with the bad formatting because it's intrinsic to them the book gets all chopped up in funny different ways and it's tiny and people look at them on their eye on their phones i don't even know how you can go, not go blind looking at books like that but anyway then they're also some of them many of them are developed as apps for a, a horizontal format mm. where they're slightly interactive you know you click on a word and a picture and it'll read the word and uh, ocean house media does apps of that form for both for the HarperCollins books. Um, so, and they sell pretty well. Those are quite popular. The ebook versions are, don't sell much. And in fact, uh, children's picture books don't really sell significantly as ebooks in general. It's a very small part of the children's picture book market still. And uh, it's not just the very same bears. I've been actually been told by HarperCollins that ours sell better than others. Oh, wow. But if you look at the percentage, it's maybe, you know, most books, it's only like 10% of sales or ebooks. It's yeah. not like books. I've been, uh, when I found myself unable to locate a book for my show, I've gone and just purchased the ebook edition of right. these books. And then once I found the book, I've had to compare the two and I'm amazed at how chopped up some of the classic yeah. splash pages and illustrations. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, some, some authors, uh, I think actually, I think Sendak, for instance, uh, mm refuse to even let his books be issued as ebooks, And that's the choice you can make for that reason. Uh, but I feel like, well, if people really want them and they want to use, I just want to make them available. Right. But I think that it's, it's not really a great format for adapting children's books. Right. Are there any plans to release um, your parents' uh, earlier works, like re-release them in book forms, like their adult work, their uh, magazine comics? Well, uh, no. And the reason for that is that uh, I don't know if you saw the book I published a while back with Abrams called Child's Play. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. That was my big attempt to sort of go in that direction. That was sort of, I had hoped that maybe we could follow up on that. And that was, but that was connected with the museum exhibit, exhibition, uh, which was on the artwork that was used in that book was all artwork, which had been uh, uh, photographed for this museum exhibition. People wonder, like, why there's such an odd collection of things in that book. And that's because I didn't pick them. The museum picked them. And so they, they, had, they had their own reasons for picking things, not me. Uh, and the, the economics of the book only worked because they had already been photographed by the museum. So Abrams didn't have to put money into the photography. Uh, and the book sold about, you know, 500 copies or something. So it's maybe 600. <laughs> so nobody has any interest in publishing I mean, there are people out there who would like books, right? But no publishers are going to have anything to do with it because they can't sell them. That's fascinating. There's just not enough of a public to justify doing books about them. There's just so much good stuff there. It's yeah. very frustrating. Well, 
my scheme with that book was that I was going to uh, sell it uh, in at book signings as this museum exhibition toured the country, mm-hmm. and that that would be like sell it, hand sell it as a way because I really wanted to get my parents' cartoon work out to the public again. That was right. the whole point of it because I, I love it so much, and I went I'd always wanted to get a book version of it published. Uh, but the museum exhibition, well, I just shouldn't be. I shouldn't be critical of the museum. They wound up doing it as a as a as a kind of sociological study of the baby, baby boom toys and play. Uh, that was the focus of the museum. And so, other museums, although very work very well, the originating museum, other museums, art museums weren't interested in it because it wasn't really an art exhibit. It had it was very scholarly, yeah, and, and focused on the sociology of the baby boom generation. So it didn't tour. And so I didn't get to do book signings. I didn't get to hand sell it. So it just went out there and sold about 600 copies, you know, languished. Yeah. And I have a lot of them in the basement. Oh, really? I have boxes and boxes. <laughs> One of the questions that a very young listener had is, who is your favorite character to write? That's, I, uh, to write? Well, I think I have to admit it's Papa Bear. Because people, um, you know, you get a lot of, a lot of complaints about Papa Bear his character. And this, 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 this people not be people having a mixed feeling about Papa goes back to the very origins of the book. People were like, well, why is he like that? Why is he so accident prone? Why is he, you know, always messing up in some way? You know, well, the, the, and people I think don't credit to the extent to which the Papa and Mama Bear are simply exaggerations of the actual character of my own, of Stan and Jan. They, they really are. My father really was excitable he was very smart. He was a brilliant man, but he really could do dumb things. And, you know, he really was accident prone and could goof up. And my mother really was very calm and sensible and cool and very funny, but very dry. Of course, a lot of it, I think, has to do with ethnicity and culture. My father, you know, was like this all the time, knocking things over and and talking all the time, and laughing. And, <laughs> and my mother was her her maiden name was Grant. Her father, her great grandfather, was from Scotland, and they they didn't do that. They were <laughs> and controlled and a little taciturn. And uh, a lot of it is, and also I tend to mix the two characters together. So I have a lot of Papa Bear in me, and we've actually used in the books over the years uh, dumb things I've done as a parent in as the plots of books stupid screw-ups I've done. So I, I identify with Papa Bear personally. And I kind of resent people who, who criticize them because just because you're accident-prone and maybe a little a little goofy doesn't mean you're a bad person. No, no, of course I feel not. Like I'm, I think I'm a very capable person in many ways, and I'm very skillful in a lot of things. But, okay, the fact that I'm a little, a little excitable and a little goofy, I don't think that's so bad. And I think Papa Bear, he's a mixed character like most people. Well, I've found as I've gotten older and raised my children that I've identified more and more with Papa Bear. Yeah. It's just, it's a natural impulse for most men to be a little kind of, a little out there at times. And that's what happens. You know, you get, it's really over-enthusiasm, over-confidence, over-enthusiasm is the problem. And so, you know, you, you, you get into trouble. Things, things go wrong sometimes when, you, when, you're, when you're trying to do too much. Well, and finally, uh, one final question. What do you consider to be the best thing in life? Me? Yes. <laughs> the best thing in life. Uh, well, I, I like to draw pictures. And I know people 
they think that I should have a great motivation to draw, to do particular kinds of things. And I think sometimes people don't understand the psychology of a professional artist. Uh, I like to draw almost anything. And I, I, I wound up drawing the Bernstein Bear books and creating them. And I love doing that, but I like drawing other things too. I just like to draw and paint. And so that's a pretty simple minded thing. Like if, when I go, when I go on vacation, I'll take a long sketchbook and I'll just draw. Actually, I was, my wife and I were on a tour of Italy a while back and, uh, we were getting tours of like great, great by, by a guide, great places in, in, in Venice. And I had a sketchbook and sometimes I'd draw paintings or statues, but then sometimes the guide would look at me and he'd say to my wife, what's he drawing now? And I'd be drawing like a lamp or something. <laughs> I came and a gate because I thought that's interesting looking. And I think he didn't really understand why I wasn't just paying attention to the historical sense. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Phil. It's been great. And good luck with your series. Congratulations. This is your 50th, right? 50th, 50th episode. Okay. Yes. That's a lot. And I want to know, what are you, what are you going to do as you get in, uh, into the late 80s and 90s when the publishing explodes and there's more and more and more books? What, are you going to retire on your laurels? What are you going to do? I have no idea. I am I'm already <laughs> at a... As, as, you get into the, you know, as you get into the late 80s and 90s, it just expands. But yeah, we're going to have to cover the TV show. We're going to have to go back and recover the specials. Uh, there's more collectibles coming up. Uh, I'm going to have I'm going to try to have more guests on to uh, to to cover the themes of the books, and uh, we'll just keep this ball rolling and see how long it goes. Well, good luck, and the be my best wishes to you in your endeavor. And uh, I admire your tenacity. <laughs> Thank you very much, and good luck to all of your endeavors. Thank you, Phil. That was my interview with Mike Berenstain, author and illustrator of the Berenstain Bear books. Don't forget to visit us on iTunes where you can rate and review us. We'd love to get rated and reviewed on iTunes. We are also at berensteinbearcast.wordpress.com where you can find all of our past episodes as well as show notes. You can also find us on Twitter at bstainbearcast. And if you want to write to me, write to me on Gmail, berensteinbearcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, know what you think about the show. We'll be back next week with more Berenstain Bear fun we got some fun books ahead of us we got some more collectibles we got some more television episodes and specials so mark your calendars for every week yet to come this show's not ending anytime soon and i will see you next week deep in bear country